Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church in Kannapolis, North Carolina. As student pastor, Justin Stevers shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I have a question for you guys. Do you guys hear that rain? That is insane, actually. No, another question. Um, do you guys ever get the feeling that there's, you know, it's not every time, but sometimes you get the feeling like, hey, I think I'm the smartest person in the room right now. You, does anyone, can you kind of relate to that? Pastor Dean's nodding his head emphatically. Um, I get paid to be in the room with a bunch of middle school and high schoolers, so I get this feeling a lot. Uh, actually, at youth camp, we had a very scholarly debate, me against a ton of students, and we were just hanging out in the like meeting room. It was kind of downtime, and a bunch of these students were eating starbursts. Um, and they were like, you know what? You can eat the wrapper. The wrapper's paper, and it's edible. And I was saying, okay, yeah, sure, it's, it's edible. You can eat a lot of things. A lot of things are technically like not toxic. And they said, yeah, it's edible. You can digest it. And that's where I drew the line. I said, hold on. No, it's paper. You can't digest it. And they were saying, no, you can. You can eat it, and it goes through your system, and you can digest it. I said, guys, listen. And I started, I started raising my voice. I was like, listen to me. I went to college. It is not digestible. And finally, like, we're going back and forth. Um, I'm like, we're, we're not a bunch of termites. We can't just digest paper. And I was getting heated. Uh, I was getting, like, I was getting angry at these, at these heathen kids thinking you could digest paper. And then finally, Nate Cobb, in his wisdom, I won't throw him under the bus, but he was on the wrong side of this debate. Um, he Googled it, and it said paper is made out of indigestible fiber. And I, I said, thank you. Like, why are you doubting me? Um, but at that moment, I felt like I was the smartest in the room. I was the only one. It was me against the world. Um, but maybe you get that feeling uh, some other times, right? Maybe uh, if you played baseball, you're on the baseball team, and the, the pitcher's on the mound, and he hasn't thrown a strike since 2018, and for some reason, the coach keeps him in, and he's walked four batters in a row, and just why haven't, haven't he put, why hasn't he put me on the mound yet? I'll strike out the side. I'll throw a no-hitter. Like, if only the coach were as smart as me. Or the thing that frustrates me is in football. If it's fourth and inches, right? Like, we're, we're moving the ball down the field. We just have to move the ball, like, that far, right? So it's fourth and inches, and the coach calls a play, and they line up in shotgun formation. So you have to go this far. So instead of, like, being right there with the ball, you back up five yards, and then you hand it off, or you throw it, and you throw an interception. It's like, that frustrates me. It's like, get your guy with the longest arms, the thickest dude on your team, and just put him under center and fall forward, and you have a first down. That frustrates me. I'm like, if only coaches were as smart as me. Um, maybe you guys um, scroll through Facebook, and maybe scrolling through Facebook, you see what people post, and you see what maybe uh, pages and news organizations post, and you're like, man, if only people were half as smart as me, the world would be a lot better place. Maybe you can relate to that feeling. Um, I think in our passage today, we're going to see that this feeling 
is universal. And I think we're going to see that sometimes it's natural for us, it's natural in our flesh to think that we are smarter than God. It's natural in our flesh to, uh, you know, people won't come out and say it, but their thought process shows it, and we say, I'm just a little bit smarter than you, God. I remember when I was in middle school, um, I, you know, had a plan. I, I gave God my plan. I said, God, if you make me a famous football player, then I can share the gospel with so many more people, and, you know, mission accomplished. You're welcome, God. Um, and, you know, it didn't work uh, yet. You know, you, you might not be as vain as middle school Justin. You might not be as vain as 27-year-old Justin who's still waiting on a shot. Maybe you didn't think you were going to be the football player to win the world for Christ, but maybe you had some other questions that kind of touch on this temptation. Um, why doesn't God heal this person? And then all these people will believe. Maybe you've had the question, uh, why doesn't God just do this so that more people will know about him? Why is God letting this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? And in questions like these, I think we're subtly thinking that God needs to reach our level of intellect. Uh, if, if he took my advice, then God would finally be on the right track. And we start thinking that we are smarter than God. And today, Paul is going to explain to us uh, why we feel this way, that it's a universal reality, that the world thinks that they know better than God. And like I said, we're in 1 Corinthians, and we've been seeing the pride of, of the Corinthians. Uh, last time we talked about 1 Corinthians, we saw how these, I was going to say doofuses, but um, that's not strong enough of a word, but, but this messed up church was fighting each other. They were talking to each other. They were, they were arguing. They were saying, I follow Paul. I follow Peter. Well, I follow Apollos. And then that one uh, guy who's better than everyone else said, I follow Christ. They were saying, I am smarter, I am superior, I am a higher tier Christian than you because I follow this person. And Paul is going to show us that in God's wisdom, he flips our wisdom upside down. God's wisdom is so high that our wisdom can't make sense of it by itself. We need the Holy Spirit. So Paul is going to show us that God's wisdom and God's calling are upside down or countercultural, and in his countercultural wisdom, it should cause us to glorify him, to live humbly in unity, and to love others. So when we see how God does things, we need to be humbled, and when we are humbled, we can achieve the unity that Paul is talking about in First uh, Corinthians chapter 1 through chapter 4, and then we can live for his glory. So if you have already flipped there, let's go ahead and stand, and we're going to read First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17, well, 18 through 31. If you have your Bibles, follow along with me. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. 
But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block. Unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base or uh, insignificant things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Let's pray and dive into it. God, you are so good. Lord, I pray that we can hear from you through your word, that we can see how good and wise and gracious you are, Lord, and that we can rest in that, that we can trust you in that, and then we can give you all the glory you deserve, Jesus. Speak to us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So what we see here in this passage is God's countercultural wisdom and his calling should lead Christians to love, unity, and live for the glory of God. And, and Paul shows us this truth by answering two questions. Just go talk about two questions today. First, Paul answers the question, why do people reject Christ? He answers that in verses 18 through 25. Verse 18 is kind of his main thesis statement, his main point. Verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. This is, this is Paul's main idea. The preaching of the cross is to those perishing foolishness and is the power of God to those who are being saved. Before diving into that, notice here that there's only two people, two types of people in the world. There are those who are perishing and there are those who are being saved. Uh, Pastor Dean touched on it uh, this morning. There's two responses those living in active rebellion against God and suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, as Romans 1 says, or there are those who are being rescued and being made into the likeness of God, into the likeness of Christ. 
Jesus says in Matthew 12, if you are not for me, you're against me. I always think of Star Wars uh, when I quote that, but I'm not going to quote the Star Wars quote. I'm getting back to the Bible. Matthew 12, whoever is not with me is against me. Okay, those are only two options. There's no halfway Christian. There's no dabbling pagan. You can't sit on the fence with God. One of my favorite movies, one of my favorite musicals, one of my favorite stories of all time um, is a book called Les Mis. Now, the first time I ever saw that, I didn't know what it was. You, it looks like it's spelled Les Miserables. Apparently, French people don't like all the letters, and they just say like the first few letters and then mumble the rest, right? So it's like Les Miserables. So, so that, that's one of the like, best books ever written, Les Miserables. Um, Les Mis uh, is actually, we're going to do a production, um, a youth group production, and, and probably young adults too. Uh, we'll do a full, uh, what's the word, Broadway show of Les Mis for, for you guys so we can raise like a million dollars for a new youth building. Um, but Les Mis, one of the greatest stories of all time, this book was written 160 years ago, so I'm not worried about spoiling it for you. If you didn't read it within the last 160 years or watch one of the movies, uh, that's your fault, not mine. So I'm going to spoil some things. Um, but this story focuses on many characters, but the main kind of focus is on this convict and this officer. This man who starts off in prison, he stole a loaf of bread for his hungry nephew, and then went to prison, went to hard labor for 19 years. And then this officer, this, this man got out of prison. He's unable to keep a job. He's unable to find a place to stay. He, because he has to present his parole papers over and over again, and no one wants a convict living in their uh, apartment or hotel or whatever. So he's homeless. He's without hope. He is uh, without food. He is without clothes. He is just in a mess. But then he wanders across a church, and this priest welcomes him in. This priest shows kindness to him. This priest gives him the things that he needs, food, a place to stay. But while the convict is eating with this priest, uh, he sees some silver uh, in the, in the kitchen, in the um, dining room. He steals the silver, and he runs away. He's caught in his own ways, and then he gets caught by police. They bring him back to the church, and they say, priest, what do you want to do with this man? And the priest says, nothing. Release him. I'm giving him the silver. I forgive him. Uh, he shows grace to the convict. He was supposed to go back to prison, probably for life, for breaking parole, but he shows grace. And then this man, this convict, doesn't know what to do with himself. He has this like existential crisis and, and he doesn't know what to do, but eventually he comes out, he receives the grace, he comes out on the other side and he turns his life around. He turns his life around and then he contributes, he does good for the community and he builds a new life. But then there's the captain of the police. Uh, this captain represents law with no grace. This captain is a by-the-book Pharisee. He is not someone who is fun to hang out with. And his whole life's mission is to capture this convict who broke parole and put him back in bars. 
And uh, I love singing one of his songs. I don't know where Lizzie is, but I always sing it to Haddon, the whole song, uh, all the way, because Russell Crowe sings it, and he's not the best singer. Um, so I feel like I'm really good at singing it compared to him. But his whole life's goal is uh, capturing this guy, putting him back in bars. And he's after him years and years and decades and decades. And then at one point, there's this like, it's not the French Revolution, but some like mini revolt in Paris. Um, And they're at this barricade. The captain gets captured. And it just so happens that the convict is there at the barricade. And the people at the barricade give the captain to the convict and say, his life is yours. Take him out back. You have to execute this man. So finally, the convict can, can be done with running, be done with hiding his whole life. He can, his, the, this guy's life is in his hands. And just like the priest, the one who was shown grace ends up showing grace. He, he lets the captain live. He didn't have to, but he lets the captain live. But the captain, who is this epitome of the law, he has an existential crisis. He doesn't know what he's doing with his life. He can't fathom law and grace coinciding. He can't understand it. He can't accept it, so he doesn't accept it. And he goes after the convict again, and eventually he, he can't, he, he's wrestling with these two ideas of law and grace. He can't accept it, and he ends up taking his own life because he cannot live in a world of grace. And it, this is an amazing picture. I, I, last time I watched it, it was like the ninth time I watched it, um, and it was probably the first time I teared up at it. But it, it's this picture of how people respond to grace. You have two responses. And when I think of the responses in Les Mis, I always think of a biblical Les Mis, a biblical picture of these responses to grace. So um, if you want, you can flip back to Acts chapter 2. You don't have to, but if you want. Uh, Acts chapter 2. You guys know the context of Acts chapter 2, right? Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, comes on to the early church. Um, Jews from all over the world are in Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost, and then the church starts speaking these languages. Languages, and these people from far off lands are like, wait a minute, I know what you're saying. What's going on? And they give their ear. And then Peter goes up and he preaches this beautiful message of the gospel. And then Acts 2, 37, the audience says to Peter, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Keep that in mind. They were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then he goes on. So they hear this message of grace, they were pricked to the heart, and they respond. But then there's another picture in Acts chapter 7. You guys might know the context of Acts chapter 7. This is Stephen, the first, one of the first deacons. He is on trial before religious leaders. And Stephen ends up preaching the longest sermon in Acts, I believe, if my college degree told me rightly. Um, Stephen ends up preaching the longest sermon and preaches the gospel. 
And these people, in verse 54 of chapter 7, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed their teeth on them. They, they gnashed on him with their teeth, and they go on, and they end up killing Stephen. He becomes the first martyr of the early church. Well, if you notice, if you were paying attention, the first response, they were pricked to the heart. The second response, they were cut to the heart. That word in Greek is the same word. After both messages of grace, they were cut in their heart. But they were both cut, but they had completely opposite responses. The, the, the audience in Acts chapter 2, they were cut and their hearts were softened and they accepted this free gift of grace. But the audience in Acts chapter 7, they were cut and their hearts were callous. Their hearts grew harder and they couldn't fathom what this grace could be like. And they end up going against Stephen and killing him. So there are two types of people. We see that illustrated in Acts. We see that illustrated in the great movie Les Mis. Go watch that later. But these two types of people are either rejectors or repenters. And the question to us is, which am I? Which are you? Do you see the work of Christ? Do you see what Christ has done in living the perfect life, in going to the cross in your place to satisfy the wrath of God and then raising again three days later, defeating sin and death and will one day return? Do you believe that and know that if you give your life to him, if you turn from your sins, you will be made a new creation. You will be rescued from your sin and adopted into the family of God. Do you know that? And if you do, how are you going to respond? And that's not a message just for non-Christians. That's a message for every Christian in this room. We have to constantly look at the gospel and say, how am I going to respond? Am I going to reject it today or am I going to repent today? Christians' lives are marked by daily repentance. It's not just a one time I walked an aisle, I said a prayer, and now I have my ticket, I'm good to go. A Christian's life is daily dying to self and leaning on the strength and power and grace of the Lord. So is, is that characteristic of you today? Is that characteristic of me? Paul shows that there's only two people, and then he shows uh, why people reject God. People reject God because his wisdom is so much higher than earthly, fleshly, worldly wisdom that the world couldn't comprehend it. Paul goes on to talk about why we preach the cross of Christ. He uses the cross here intentionally because God in his wisdom chose the cross as the means by which he will save his people. Well, to the Jews, verse 23, the cross was a stumbling block. You guys ready for a little Greek vocabulary? The, the word there, stumbling block, is scandalon. What English word do you think we got from scandalon? Scandal, right? This, the, to the Jews, the cross was scandalous. The cross was a scandal to the Jews. The Jews wanted a Messiah, but not the one that God gave them. They wanted a powerful, political, 
deliverer to free them from the Romans, but they received a suffering servant who went to the cross for his sheep. The Greeks or the Gentiles, you weren't supposed to even say the word cross. It was a cuss word in those days. It was grotesque. Um, people today, um, I remember growing up in youth group, and the uh, youth pastor would say something like, you know, you, if you're wearing a cross on your necklace, or, you know, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That's like him saying, take up your electric chair and follow me. You know, it's like wearing an electric chair on your necklace. It doesn't make sense to us today. And part of that's true, but I don't think that goes far enough. Because in this day, if I said the word cross, everyone in here would have flinched a little bit. Everyone in here would have been a little uncomfortable. If I say electric chair, we're a little numb to that, I feel like. But the word cross was a dirty word. There's an ancient philosopher who, who taught rhetoric who lived in uh, the first century B.C., and they're still, like, publishing his works. People are still reading him. I think he was a Stoic. Um, but, but he said the word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts and his eyes and his ears. You shouldn't even think of the word cross. You shouldn't see it written down. You shouldn't hear the word cross. But in this culture, where did God go to bring us salvation? He went to that offensive cross. He did the opposite of what you and I would probably think he should do. The Jews wanted a sign. The Greeks wanted wisdom, verse 22. They didn't want a cross. I think today you see a lot of people, they want a sign. They want a miracle. They want uh, some emotional experience, or they want wisdom. They want evidence on my terms. They want arguments that I agree with. But God didn't give us those things. He gave us a cross. We don't find the answer to save our souls on highs and lows, on feelings or emotions, or on arguments. Those things can be fine in their place, but we base our confidence for our souls on the completed work of Christ on his cross. So why did God choose to work this way? Because his wisdom is so great that he is showing that worldly wisdom is nothing, verse 21. The world could never reason its way to God. People love to argue, and, you know, I see it on, on the internet all the time, and, um, I cringe at it because that was what I wanted to do in like middle school and stuff. I wanted to be a keyboard warrior and like, you know, argue against everyone and be like the, who's a good apologist? Um, Cornelius Van Til, if you know who he is. Uh, Cornelius Van Til of my day writing um, these, you know, Facebook or MySpace posts, um, defending the cross. But apologetics can only go so far because we're talking about people who are actively suppressing the truth. We're talking about dead people in their sins and alive people. Nothing's neutral here. People think, well, reason is neutral. Well, verse 21 says, in the, uh, the wisdom of the world, they knew not God. And it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that 
believe. The world can never reason its way to God. And it pleased God that by the foolishness of preaching this scandalous cross, people may be saved. When we were at youth camp, we had some question and answers. And, and one of the questions Pastor Jake answered, and he said, whatever the answer is, we know and we trust that God is so good, that God is so omniscient and so smart and so in control that when we get to the other side of eternity, we won't, our, our mouths won't open with that question because we will see, we will understand that every decision he made, every reason he had was both good and perfect. Everything he did was perfect and right. And, and we don't see it in our finitude. We don't see it in our humanity. But the Lord, I, I give this illustration, and it never works in youth because they always mess me up. But I'll say, those of you who have like a, a, a little sibling in preschool or kindergarten, are you, you know, you're 12, 14 years old, are you a little bit smarter than them? Yes, okay. Well, your parents, they're about 20 to 30 years on average older than you. You think they're a little bit smarter than you? And they say, no. It's like, okay, hold on, pause. Yes, they are. Your parents are smarter than you. Um, but think about that. I'm a little bit smarter than my imaginary preschool sibling. My parents are a little bit smarter. They got 30 years on me. How much smarter do you think infinity years is? God, who has no beginning, who is creator of everything. How much more wisdom do you think? If I'm, oh, I can't even, uh, Haddon's not here. I wanted to just bash him. He is not smart at all, right? He can't even say a word. He can't, he can, he can barely eat by himself. He can't eat by himself. I can. I have a college degree. How much exponentially smarter I am than Haddon, that's incomparable to how God is to us, right? We look like babbling little Haddons, not even crawling around because he can't crawl, compared to God's wisdom. God often doesn't work in the way that we or our culture might want him to work, and this is a good thing. He works in a better way. He works in a greater way. He works, verse 21, through the preaching of the cross. He works through what Christians have historically called the ordinary means of grace. He doesn't, he, he does, he works through extraordinary ways. He works through some special and miraculous ways sometimes, but day to day, he works through his ordinary means of grace. He works through faithful preaching of the word. He, he works through faithful reading of the Bible. He works through prayer, and he works through the community of the church, the family of the church. That's how he works, to accomplish his extraordinary, his perfect purpose. So Christian, trust him to do the work. Be faithful in living out these ordinary means of grace. Students, pray for your friends who don't know Christ because God works through prayer. Moms, share what you learned in your quiet time with your kids because God works through his word. Dads, lead your families well, prioritizing God's word and God's church over everything else because the Lord uses his people. 
and the Lord will use these ordinary and faithful means. He will use you, ordinary and faithful Christians, to make an eternal impact. I got to go on to the second question. Why do Christians accept Christ? We see, why do people reject him? Now, why do Christians accept him? We see in verse 26 through 29, we do not accept him because of who we are. Or Christians do not accept them, him because of who they are. Verse 26, he says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. He said, look at your church. You're a bunch of dummies. He didn't really say that. But according to the world, you are not the wisest. You are not the most powerful. You're not the most noble. There was nothing in you that God saw that made him need you. I always think it's interesting um, when we see this, this cycle of celebrities who convert to uh, Christianity or say something semi-Christian and then a, a little section of, a little fraction of Christians, they'll just lose their mind, right? And I, I, can, I can bash people like that because in middle school, I was one of those. I was like on MySpace. I've never told anyone this, but there were a few times I like was on MySpace and I messaged these like celebrities and like, hey, do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? It's like, that, that wasn't LeBron James's account, but it was someone made a MySpace page. Does anyone remember MySpace, by the way? You had your top eight friends and some music. Anyway, um, I messaged them. I was like, oh man, if only, uh, I don't know, Dylan and Cole Sprouse were Christians, then everyone would be a Christian, you know? So I can make fun of people because I was that person. But I remember in college, there were these few high-profile conversions that felt like they only lasted a few weeks. But in those few weeks, there were some people at Liberty who were ecstatic. They were like, finally, Christianity has some credibility. Someone who's famous, someone with power, believes or said something semi-Christian. Finally, people are going to believe us. And that's the complete opposite of the 1 Corinthians chapter 1 strategy. That is not how God works. God is not looking for someone to help him. God is showing his grace to the helpless. Now, uh, we notice that, that Paul does say many. He doesn't say any. So there were some who were wise in the world. There were some mighty. There were some noble people in this church, probably. But God's ordinary strategy is to save nobodies. Why does he save nobodies? To confound the wise, to shame the wise, to shame the powerful. He doesn't choose someone because they bring something to the table. He chooses those who offer nothing. And he does great works through them. And I'm sure we can think of a million biblical examples, right? Uh, Peter was an ignorant fisherman. Uh, Paul was a religious terrorist. Moses had a speech impediment. Samson had long hair, right? These all had weakness. Um, the long hair isn't in itself, it was a joke. But I stole that from my, my pastor uh, back home, and I never laughed at it either. But God uses the weakest to show how strong he is. If there was something in us that we brought to the table, then we would have something to boast in. If he chose powerful people because they were powerful, they can say, I know why I was chosen. Why were you chosen? They have something to 
glory in. But as Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. We aren't saved because of who we are. Second, we aren't saved because of what we do. Verse 30, but of him are you in Christ Jesus. Of him, because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Not of you. You didn't do anything to earn God's favor. He did all of it. Paul goes on to list the things he did. Christ became wisdom. He became our righteousness. He put us in a right standing with God. He became our sanctification. He morally cleansed us. He became our redemption. He rescued us from slavery to sin. He did all these things, and you did nothing. You didn't add a single ounce to his work. Christ did all the work. Paul even says in Romans 8, Romans 3, that we couldn't do anything. Uh, Romans 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside and together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It's impossible for you to do something to save yourself. But Jesus says, talking about salvation in Luke 18, he says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. He does the work. He does the work so that verse 29 and 31, we have nothing to boast about. So your salvation, your work for God, your advancement of the kingdom, your whatever you do in church, whatever it is, know that it's not because of me or you, but it's because of Christ and his power and his strength that he pours out to us in grace. We can't boast on how God uses us. We can't boast on our gifts. We can't boast on our accomplishments because God did it all. But we do boast in verse 31. We boast in Christ. Why do Christians accept Christ? Not because of who they are, not because of what they do, but because God is gracious. And because of this truth in this passage, the truth of God's wisdom being greater, the truth of our calling being greater, the truth that we contribute nothing, how are we going to respond? We have to respond one way or another. And like we said in the beginning, you can either reject Christ or accept him today. Christian, you can either be like the Corinthians and find something to boast about, your wisdom, your uh, perfect family, your Sunday school attendance, or you can see Christ's work and humbly be used by him in the ordinary day-to-day, in faithful love and humility, and then you will make an eternal impact. Unity in the church will follow, and the Lord will work through his church to accomplish his great purpose of the Great Commission, and he alone will receive all the blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.